Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a third-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system. I'm Melena Rice. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Yale University, where I study the dynamics of planetary systems. And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and other transient events. You're listening to Episode 29, Walking on Sunshine. Let's go back to the late 1950s. Do we have to? (laughs) (laughs) The late 50s were a time where we thought we understood more about the solar system than we really do. And now that I say that, isn't that true about any time? We always think we know more than we do. And then once you learn something new, you realize you didn't know it. I genuinely think I'm pretty clueless. So, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) The podcast of 2070, you're going to take us back to 2020 when we knew very little about pretty much anything. (laughs) But as it turns out, in the late 50s, they were about to learn something pretty important. Eugene Parker was an astronomer trying to figure out the structure of the atmosphere of the sun. So he was trying to solve the fluid equations. Now, most undergrads will not have come across the fluid equations. It is usually part of grad curricula, but depends on the program. But these equations relate density, pressure, temperature, forces, including gravity and others, and principles of conservation into three, four, or five equations, depending on how you write them out. And the simplest starting place is to assume hydrostatic equilibrium. That is, everything is static, not moving. When Eugene Parker did this with the sun, He calculated that at an infinite distance away from the sun, you would receive a pressure from the atmosphere about 100,000 times the pressure of the interstellar medium. So the hydrostatic solution failed because it couldn't be static. It would continue to expand into space. Hmm. And so he actually realized this only solution was going to have to be dynamic. If you have the sun's corona, the outer layer of the atmosphere, always expanding into space... You could actually solve the fluid equations and come up with an answer that makes sense at infinity distance from the sun. It doesn't have a weird boundary condition. What this is called today is the solar wind. It's a steady stream of protons and other charged particles emanating from the sun all the time in every direction. And suddenly things started to make sense for Mr. Parker, or should I say Dr. Parker? Was it Professor Parker? Professor Dr. Parker. (laughs) Mr. Senior. (laughs) (laughs) so the stream of protons it's a plasma right it is a plasma charged particles i have a fun fact about plasma if y'all are willing to hear it so willing (laughs) did you know and for all our listeners out there that plasma is the largest part of your blood making up 55% of its content. This is the incorrect type of plasma. (laughs) Believe it or not, this is not the same type of plasma that composes the solar wind. What do you mean? (laughs) Well, thanks for that blood fact, Alex. (laughs) You might think of the solar wind as the lifeblood of the sun. Ah. Okay. I mean, in many ways, it it is because it connects the sun to the rest of the solar system. Let's keep moving. (laughs) 
Now, Parker was not the first to postulate the idea of a solar wind, but he was undoubtedly the first to formally theorize it, to write it down, publish it, and then follow it up with many other papers. So his original paper was 58, and then in 63, he worked out some of the kinks and beyond. And so I'd like to just outline a few of the key characteristics of the solar wind. Sure. As it moves away from the sun, it picks up speed and becomes supersonic before it even reaches Mercury. And what supersonic means in general, if a fluid is moving at a speed faster than the speed of sound, it means that any waves in the material travel slower than the material itself. And waves are essentially information. So that means that if the solar wind encounters a boundary, the waves from that encounter will not be able to propagate back and slow down the incoming particles. You know, if you were driving and you saw a crash, but you couldn't stop until you hit into the car in front of you, the crash would just keep piling up because no one would know it was there until you smacked into it. But of course, you do see it. And so the information goes faster than the crash, so you slow down, and hopefully you don't wreck. That's the idea with a supersonic wind. And then it gets up to about 400 kilometers per second, and most of the time, throughout the solar system, it moves at that speed, which is pretty darn fast. Why don't we notice it on Earth? You would think that if it was moving this fast, we might have some effect that we observe here. You would think that. But the Earth's magnetosphere, which is the sort of protective bubble created by its magnetic field, deflects the solar wind. Uh, but the places where the solar wind and other energetic particles do enter is at the cusp of the magnetic field. That's like the magnetic north pole mm. and the magnetic south pole where the lines sort of dive into the Earth. And that's where you get the aurora. Mm. So those charged particles do come into the Earth, but it's pretty rare. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I'd love to see it someday. Yeah. And at the edge of the solar system, the solar wind creates sort of a boundary with the interstellar medium. And we call that the heliopause. And that's the boundary of the interstellar medium and the heliosphere, which is the area dominated by our sun and its solar wind. So is that the definition of the boundary of the solar system? I think most people would say so, yes. Some people would say anything that's gravitationally bound to the sun mm. is the boundary. And in that case... You can go out into the Oort cloud, which would be many, many times the heliopause. But also, the, the local interstellar medium has a preferred direction. There is a wind in that medium as well. So in the direction toward the sun from that wind, so like the head of the heliosphere, it's a lot closer to get out of the solar system. But the tail of the heliosphere sort of pointing and being blown back. It's many, many times further, like maybe a hundred times further to get out. What kind of shape would this make if it's kind of pulling it behind and it's thinner in the front than the back? It's actually a quite incredible shape. Uh, one of the professors at BU is a leading researcher on this topic, and she put out a paper a few years ago that the heliosphere is shaped like a croissant. Oh, <laughs> amazing. That's I beautiful. Love that. That's very poetic. <laughs> she has a great picture in her office of the heliosphere being sort of blasted by the interstellar medium and it's it's beautifully colored and someone clearly with an artistic talent rendered it to, to look quite mm -hmm. magnificent because this was a monumental paper for her so it wasn't like brown and flaky <laughs> <laughs> it was not delicious looking but it is cool <laughs> uh, what a well-baked solar system we have <laughs> All right, and that is where we will finish up our introduction for the episode. We got a view of how the solar wind works, an idea of how it was founded. And now, Milena, we're going to throw things over to you. 
Yeah, so thanks, Will, for the awesome intro to an overview of the solar wind. I'm going to be talking briefly about an astrobite before we go into an interview. That's actually going to take most of the episode. But before we go into that interview, I wanted to give more of an overview of what we've learned about the solar wind more recently, and the most current mission that has been telling us about what the solar wind is and what we can observe about it. So the astrobite I'll be talking about today is called What Happens When You Throw a Satellite at the Sun by Briley Lewis. It's about a paper by Casper et al. 2019, and it's focusing on the Parker Solar Probe, which is named after Eugene Parker. This is the only satellite that has been named after a living person. So Eugene hmm. Parker is still alive, still working. Uh, hmm. I think he's probably emeritus, but maybe still working. <laughs> So. I think he still goes to conferences, which is one of the, like the the cool things if you get a chance to meet him. That's amazing. Yeah. But he's in his 90s. He's very old. So the Parker Solar Probe was launched in August 2018, and it was sent to approach the sun closer than any other satellite ever has, with the goal of understanding the environment surrounding the sun, which includes the plasma, the magnetic fields, the solar wind, of course, and the corona. So the Parker Solar Probe barreled through the solar wind and gathered lots of information about its density, velocity, and temperature. And so it will help us to understand the solar wind, but it will also help us to understand why events like solar flares and coronal mass ejections occur, uh, which can be hazardous to Earth. So there's a lot of motivation to understand what exactly they are. Uh, it will also help us to understand why the corona is so hot. So the corona ranges from 1 to 10 million degrees Celsius. And it seems like this is probably due to alphan waves, which are a low-frequency transverse wave that can occur in magnetized plasmas. But it's still not entirely understood why exactly it is the temperature that it is. And this particular paper was written after the first two close passages that the Parker Solar Probe had to the sun. So it remains in orbit and has 24 total close passages that are planned. And this is just sort of preliminary results from the first couple of passages. Is each passage supposed to tell us something new? Are they measuring different things with each passage? Or is it just independent validation of results across 24 different trials? I think they're going to approach at slightly different distances. And so that's going to tell us different information because you're probing different parts of the corona. And so you're going to observe slightly different aspects of the sun. Um, part of the what was found by the Parker Solar Probe actually is that it seems that not all of these properties of the sun are completely azimuthally uniform. Interesting. Something that the Parker Solar Probe observed was there were these... For example, repeated spikes in the solar wind's velocity and the magnetic field seems to be bent into this S shape. Mm. And so that's not totally understood, but each of these passages is going to not observe the exact same part of the S and it's not going to observe the exact same parts of the solar wind. Uh, so it will help us to better understand the structure around the sun. This kind of makes sense given uh, Will's introduction when he said we're not in hydrostatic equilibrium, right? We're in this hydrodynamic equilibrium. And so even slightly different positions within the corona can give you potentially vastly different measurements. Right. The tricky part with solving the fluid equations is you have to solve the macro scale. So you're looking at the whole structure. But in the micro scale, there can be all sorts of interesting deviations from mm -hmm. the equilibrium mm -hmm. that might be. Uh, worth exploring. Another thing about the Parker Solar Probe is it's going to keep going until we get to the next solar maximum. 
So it's possible that as the solar cycle evolves and the sun's activity increases, we might see a very different uh, picture in the corona. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. There's also the time aspect where the sun isn't going to be perfectly constant over time. Right. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. The, the solar magnetic field should also cause the plasma to rotate as the sun spins. So that's something else that is expected, but the rotational velocities that were observed from these first two close passages were much higher than expected. And so that's something interesting that came out of these first two passages, because since stars lose angular momentum through their stellar winds, this might suggest that the sun is spinning down a lot faster than expected. But another paper since then found that the solar wind streams vary substantially with location. So this is that azimuthal asymmetry that seems to be occurring. And because of that, the flux that you would observe at a given point varies. And so if you actually average over the entire thing, according to this paper, which is Finley et al. 2020, then you get the same results that you would expect. So that's good. That means our theories are still working. And this isn't like some deviation that we have to try to scramble to figure out. It's funny thinking about the original development of the theory, which was done by Parker, right, made predictions. We sent out uh, an instrument that went and took measurements. That's, I guess, Parker's data, because it's from the Parker probe. And Parker's data then validated or invalidated or required modifications to Parker's theory. It just seems like a very comprehensive analysis that is all stemming from Parker's results. Just took 70 years. (laughs) Right. So the Parker solar probe is plan to continue observing until 2025 so new results are going to continue to come in it will get as close as 10 solar radii well i guess inside the sun it really is inside the sun at that point it's going to help us to understand a lot of other aspects about the sun that are sort of a mystery right now so it's pretty exciting it's a really cool spacecraft well really hot spacecraft (laughs) 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 but i mean it actually does have a really cool shielding system so that despite the fact that the shield around it is going to reach 2500 degrees the spacecraft itself doesn't get any hotter than around 85 degrees so it's like a nice temperate day in california on the spacecraft think about those temperature (laughs) gradients it reaches millions of degrees in the corona and then the shield reaches 2500 degrees which is so much lower but then inside the spacecraft it's a balmy 85 yeah yeah it's crazy i mean i guess it has to do with the way that temperature works right where even though the corona is super hot there are so few particles that you're not just going to immediately burn up if you send a spacecraft Mm -hmm. there so it's useful interesting Physics is useful. (laughs) That's my one sentence summary. (laughs) Well, thanks, Melina, for that astrobite. And now that we've learned about the solar wind, let's hear more about how that solar wind can interact with other bodies in the solar system and potentially alter their evolution in dramatic ways. I am Christopher Spaulding. I am a postdoc at Princeton University in New Jersey. Uh, My preferred pronoun is he, him. I was a grad student at Caltech until 2018, so I've been a postdoc now for three years. I'm very excited to have you on the show today because I came across your recent work on Mercury a while back, and uh, I have to say I got a lot of mileage out of this paper. I used it for an astrobite, I used it for Journal Club, and I've enjoyed reading it quite a bit. So I'd like to get the listeners oriented to this paper you put out. What would you say is the driving science question behind your recent work with Mercury? Okay, so the driving science question is very much, where did Mercury come from? 
when did Mercury come from and how did Mercury come about? <laughs> Mercury is a super oddball in our solar system for a number of reasons. <laughs> of the four rocky planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, Mercury sticks out because Earth, Venus, and Mars, they seem to have similar ratios of iron and silicates, which makes up the most of rocks that you'll pick mm -hmm. up around the surface of the Earth. Overall, they look kind of like what meteorites, certain type of meteorites, chondrites, look like, which makes sense because chondrites are meteorites that are floating around the solar system, and it makes sense that they would make up the planets closest to the sun. But Mercury sticks out because Mercury has pound for pound about twice as much iron in it compared to Earth. And so the question is, why does Mercury have so much more iron than Earth, Venus, and Mars? Yeah, that's an awesome explanation. Um, so you mentioned core and mantle. I assume the crust really doesn't come into play very much. No, the crust, um, geologists are going to be sad, but the the crust is pretty much just <laughs> scum that floats on the top of what the planet's really made of. <laughs> <laughs> The crust on Earth is somewhere between like 10 and 100 kilometers thick, whereas the mantle is more like 3,000 kilometers thick. So going back to the problem of Mercury being different than the other terrestrial planets, uh, you proposed uh, kind of an unusual way that that might have happened. I did not necessarily propose the answer per se. So there's there's been a long-standing idea that Mercury used to look like Earth. Well, rather, it used to look like Mars. So if you take Mercury and you put back all the rock, then you end up with an object about the size of Mars, which is interesting because we have a Mars, so we know there were Mars-like things at some point. And so the proposal, it's the so-called giant impact hypothesis, is that Mercury way back when was somewhat like Mars, but then got hit by another object and its mantle, a lot of it, was kind of stripped off, leaving behind mostly core. When you say way back when, what kind of timescales are we talking about here? So we're talking about timescales of about the age of the Earth, which is about 4.5 billion years. We know the age of the solar system from meteorites themselves. They're a little... Um, inclusions within meteorites called calcium aluminum inclusions in those are radioactive elements that tell us how long since they were formed and so it's about 4.5 billion years we know from looking at isotopes on earth we know that the mantle and the core separated at around 30 to 50 million years after that so the window we're talking about for the formation of mars like thing and then mercury is somewhat about four and a half billion years ago, but less than 100 million years into the solar system's formation. We think that early on in the solar system's formation, the giant planets should have migrated, right? Is that associated with this giant impact phase that you're talking about, or is that separate? There's an idea for planet formation called the Nice model, which is named after a place in France called Nice, spelled nice. And um, the idea is that Jupiter and Saturn formed in a much more compact configuration. Then they started throwing planetesimals inward and Saturn moved out. And this inward flood of planetesimals is supposed to have given Earth water. However, as far as Mercury is concerned, probably what was more important is eventually as Jupiter and Saturn become far enough apart, they cross what's called a, a mean motion resonance, which caused a larger perturbation in the solar system, which may have caused giant impacts in the inner solar system. 
It sounds like it's possible, though, that the planetesimals thrown off by Jupiter and Saturn could have been an impactor. Yeah, the planetesimals thrown off by Jupiter and Saturn could be an impactor, but the impactor that we that we're talking about needs to be essentially planet-sized. And so the reason why I was I was turning around the, mm. and saying that that may not be the phase associated with giant impacts is mm. because giant impacts are probably earlier. This okay. this phase of water delivered to Earth hmm. probably happened after. What is likely the cause of giant impacts is that whenever planets form, initially they form in disks of gas and dust. And that gas and dust kind of keeps the orbits all flat in the plane of the disk. But whenever that disk material goes away, the planets are no longer kept super stable. And so without that gas stabilizing things, they're more likely to go unstable and start crashing into one another. So that is probably the giant impact phase that causes the formation of the terrestrial planets. So just to briefly recap, the the idea there is that we had a lot of different planet-sized cores that were crashing into each other sort of early on in the solar system. And this would have then affected the density of the final planets that you end up with in the inner solar system? It would have affected the density specifically of Mercury. The fact that Earth and Venus and Mars seem to be the same composition as meteorites implies that whatever crashing and flinging of planets went on, it didn't seem to affect their densities much. And at least if it did, it took as much away as it added. So... It, it may be the case, and this may tie into the work that we did, that you need certain very specific situations for these giant impacts to actually remove the mantle successfully and, and increase the density. Maybe there's a lot of evidence that there is evidence that Earth also suffered a giant impact, and you can see it in the night sky. The moon was probably once essentially part of Earth's mantle. That was carved off the difference is well there's two differences the first difference is that the moon didn't escape the earth like mercury's mantle did and second it didn't carve off enough material to significantly affect the earth's density whereas mercury seems to have lost a large fraction of its mass right so after mercury had a giant impact and got a huge chunk of its mantle blown away you said it didn't form a moon so then where did it go that is the question that we try to address. So if you fling a bunch of stuff off Mercury, it will share Mercury's orbit. So if you throw an apple hard enough into the sky, it'll escape Earth, but mm -hmm. it'll go and orbit the sun on an orbit that crosses Earth's orbit because orbits return to where they began in general. So the question is, why doesn't this material that's just circling and circling and circling and circling, sharing Mercury's orbit, why doesn't that just get sucked back up by Mercury? And the this problem sort of conceptually arises, but you can also use numerical simulations, which is what we did in the paper and what people have done before, which is if you simply model the trajectories of debris blasted off of Mercury, then you find that Mercury kind of sucks them back up within a million years or so. At least it sucks up about half of them within a million years or so, which is too much really to explain the loss of mantle that Mercury must have suffered. That is the, the primary problem with the giant impact theory is that the question of where did it go? The zeroth 
order answer is back onto Mercury. So we need to okay. stop that from happening. Because <laughs> if that happens, then Mercury does not end up like we see today. No, Mercury ends up like Mars, which is right. like what how we see Mars today. So maybe <laughs> this happened to Mars and Mars did reaccrete its mantle. Why couldn't it form a moon? It could have formed a moon. The factors that influence whether the material stays bound to the planet depends on the impact velocity and energy impact angle of the of the impactor. This is the the gift and the curse of the giant impact hypothesis across the entire solar system, not just for Mercury, is that you can pretty much tune the parameters to get whatever orbit you want. So it's it's one of those problematic hypotheses where it's almost too easy to make it work. So you need to be very careful with the predictions made from any any hypotheses that you conjure up. Going back to your paper, the title is The Solar Wind Prevents Reaccretion of Debris After Mercury's Giant Impact, which is a great title, but totally gives away the punchline. Uh, and that is that the solar wind is so critical to this and, and connects beautifully into our theme for this episode. So please bring us up to speed. How does the solar wind do this incredible thing? So the solar wind is literally a flood of charged particles. And so just like if you're standing in the wind on a windy day, you feel this pressure on your face blowing you in the opposite direction from the wind. So go back to the mercury problem. If you have this material that is blasted off mercury and it's flying around orbiting the sun, yes, if there is nothing impeding its motion, it will just carry on on that orbit until it hits mercury. But we know that the sun permeates the interplanetary space with this headwind of charged particles. The reason why it's a headwind is because today the sun's solar wind essentially goes radially outwards from the sun. There are some subtleties to that, but you can essentially think of the solar wind as going radially outwards in all directions. And so if you think of there's a radial motion and you're moving through that azimuthally if you're on an orbit, and so you kind of hit the wind at an angle and um, feel it in your face. And what this does is it causes a torque upon any orbiting material because it needs to push this solar wind out of the way and it causes the orbit to shrink. However, turn the clock back to whenever Mercury was experiencing this giant impact. And we know from looking at other sun-like stars that the sun's wind was likely stronger, probably a hundred times, possibly up to a thousand times. It's surprisingly difficult to actually measure the strength of winds around other stars. This headwind effect actually goes up by the same factor, about a factor of a hundred or so. And so the idea where the solar wind comes in is that this material that is blasted off Mercury shares the same orbit as Mercury, but only so long as it can do so against the inward decay of its orbit against the solar wind. And so we calculate for reasonable parameters the time over which it takes these orbits to decay with a strong young solar wind, and it's something like 10,000 years, 1,000 to 10,000 years. And I said earlier that it takes about a million years for Mercury to mop up all the material, and so that means the material is removed on a shorter time scale than Mercury mops it up. Thus, essentially saving the giant impact theory, modulo a bunch of other complexities that have been excluded from that picture. Essentially, the solar wind comes in by removing the material from the orbit of Mercury so it doesn't fall back onto Mercury. 
It's incredible. I mean, because you could look at the sun today, you could do the math and find it doesn't work out, but you have to infer something about the sun as it was billions of years ago to make this a possibility. Exactly. Yeah, that's probably why it hasn't been included. And actually, as a broader note, to my knowledge, all models of the solar system, like the models of the early solar system, they also don't take this into account. So I am currently thinking about, I haven't gotten too far, but I'm currently thinking about other ways this may have been important in the early solar system in ways that have not been taken account of thus far. Yeah, because I'm wondering, Venus also doesn't have a moon, right? So is it possible that at the distance of Venus, this was also could have had some effect, even though you don't see the excess in density that you see in Mercury? Venus and having a moon has actually a long history. I don't remember when this proposal was made, but there was once a proposed moon of Venus called Neith. And you may know that Venus is spinning very, very slowly. It's actually spinning backwards. And you also may know that as the Earth's moon recedes from it tidally, the Earth's spin slows. So the hypothesis is that Venus may once have had a moon like Earth, and in receding from Venus, it spun Venus down and just did that a little faster than Earth, and the moon is now lost. Maybe it hit Mercury after that, I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, solar wind would have been probably too weak to have had the same effect as it had on Mercury, though. Got it. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask, since Mercury is closer to the sun, it probably has a larger effect. And so does that mean that even if all of the terrestrial planets were impacted at roughly the same rate, you would still expect Mercury to be denser because it has a stronger effect from the solar wind? Or is there a necessity that it was impacted in any sort of different way? No, that's a great question. It needs to be impacted enough for material to leave its surface for sure. But if you do the same calculation for a Mercury that lives where Venus lives, then in general, all the timescales will be about five to ten times slower around Venus. So you'd expect it to be a much less efficient process. And going back to something I said earlier about all hypotheses needing predictions, there is a prediction to this idea. And that is when we look at extrasolar planets, planets around other stars, then closer in planets, meaning 0.4 AU, Mercury's distance, and closer, should get to higher densities. There was actually a paper that suggested this. First author was Swain, S-W-A-I-N, et al., 2019, who looked at extrasolar planets and looked at their densities versus their stellar insulation, how much heat they gain from the star, which is a proxy for distance, but it depends on what type of star. They did seem to find that planets that were hotter got to higher densities. So that's consistent, but there's probably a million other things, including observational bias, that could have caused that. So I'm not going to hang my hat on that prediction, but it's a first step at least. But yes, Mercury's position did matter. It had to be close. So why don't you tell us about what comes next with this work and what you're excited about? As I've alluded to thus far, the the Mercury problem that we have worked on has been stripped on, I suppose. There are lots of other physics going on. And so the most problematic is this idea that the, the particles, as they, after they come off Mercury, there will be a lot of them and they will collide with one another. And so what happens whenever particles share the same orbit around the sun and start colliding into one another 
is what happens around Saturn. And Saturn has these rings. These are particles that are, they don't collide that much, but they do collide occasionally. And so essentially this material that comes off Mercury should hit itself so many times that it turns into a big so-called debris disk. And then the disk spreads out either side from Mercury. This is a problem because the side of the disk that is really close to the sun absorbs all the solar wind and blocks the material further away. And this makes it harder for the material to lose its angular momentum, lose its energy and get, get out of Mercury's way, essentially. However, this, this problem is also more complicated because whenever you're treating single particles, you can kind of just pretend they're on an orbit that will eventually collide with Mercury. But whenever particles are in a disk, they act a little bit more like a gas in that they are sort of hitting into each other, almost forming like a pressure. And if you put a ring of particles, whenever they're hitting each other, they break each other up into small pieces. And this makes the solar wind more effective, but it also makes the disk spread. So there are all these complications to the to just the physical aspect of modeling this problem that I'm thinking about right now. It's preliminary but it'll essentially come down to how fast the particles spread versus how rapidly they break down to small sizes and get more affected by the solar wind. Chris, maybe this is going to turn into a can of worms, but I know that people now in the context of the giant impactor to the Earth are running simulations using early Earth's magnetic fields. I was wondering how any early magnetic fields on Mercury might change the answer or influence your result in any way. Well, that is a can of worms. Okay. <laughs> um, so the magnetic field is kind of literally a can of worms because it's all these fields like... Warming their warming way, yeah. Way all over the, place. <laughs> the magnetic field effect... Yeah, I saw that recent paper about the effect of Earth's magnetic field on the disk. It's fascinating. I haven't read it in detail. As for Mercury, Mercury is actually weird in that it does actually have a magnetic field. It has a global magnetic field. Unlike Venus, unlike Mars... And this is actually some evidence that it has a liquid outer core, just like the Earth as well. So as for how magnetic fields would affect this process, um, magnetic fields, I don't think they would affect this process very much, at least not from Mercury. So there is one effect which it could be important to, and we're, the observation we're essentially trying to fit is that mercury has a lot of iron and we know that iron is magnetic and so there is a potential for mercury to mop up material more easily if it's made of iron this would be one thing to include in the future work that i talked about modeling a disk that is falling back onto mercury but using intuition with magnetic fields it's almost always going to be wrong but i feel my intuition is that mercury's magnetic field is not going to be strong enough However, there, that's not the only magnetic field around. The sun linked to the fact it had a stronger solar wind, it also had a stronger magnetic field. The sun's magnetic field could affect the trajectories of silica versus iron, but I don't know whether it would help or hinder us, to be honest. Got it. That's fascinating. Thanks. Is this the same sort of work you did in grad school, or did you pivot fields since you graduated? I definitely pivoted. So I've never been able to decide which part of science is my favorite. Um, this is a gift and a curse. Um, it's fortunate because 
I did my grad school at Caltech in a geology and planetary science department, which allowed you to do um, everything from astrophysics to geobiology. I did stuff with Professor Konstantin Batygin on the formation of planets whose orbits are tilted with respect to their host stars. But I simultaneously did some geobiological modeling work because I'm a mathematician underneath it all. Um, and so you can apply math to anything. I actually did some modeling of the energy it takes shellfish to make their shells and how much that changes under ocean acidification. Wow. Um, I find myself a little bit easier. I was, I was a little bit better at the astrophysics. So I thought I would, I would fit with that. But this work on Mercury is me essentially trying to hit the sweet spot in the middle, you know, going from stars and exoplanets to life on Earth and going somewhere in the middle. So I pivoted in a sense that I focused in on middle ground, but I'm still working on the two extremes as well. The thing that I'm most thankful for is doing a lot of mathematics because with mathematics, you can pivot, I think more easily than some other fields. Like if you learn how to use one telescope, it's hard to just look at whatever you want. It's interesting that you went from understanding how animals gain their shells to understanding how mercury lost its shell. <laughs> I never thought about that. <laughs> so, since you're a postdoc with a fellowship, you have a lot of flexibility to decide on what types of topics you'd like to work on. And this is something I've been thinking about in general as I start to approach postdoc application season. Uh, so, I was wondering how you decide on a topic and what sources you use as inspiration for new projects to work on, and how you decide on what to work on since you have this whole world of opportunities. That question is probably still haunting most tenured professors. So, um, and I say that, I say that honestly, because I at least like to hear it whenever professors are struggling with the same thing as me. And I'm always in this constant state of, oh no, will I like never have another good idea. And anytime I ask a professor about, or tell a professor that I'm having those thoughts, they're like, yeah, me too. <laughs> There's not necessarily a formula for deciding what the next project is. But I think the best way I could summarize it was actually how Professor Greg Laughlin, who Milena knows very well <laughs> at Yale, um, said to me is that choose whatever you'll regret most not doing, I suppose is the way, hmm. is the way to say it. That's sort of a stronger way of saying choose whatever you're interested in. As far as getting the ideas, for me, it's mostly I'm going to a talk or I'm discussing with people in person and I take occasional notes of anything that pops into my head and sometimes it's something worthwhile, 99% of the time it's not. Um, unfortunately, in-person talks and conversation have been rather absent in the past 10 months or so, mm -hmm. so that has stifled some creativity and I'd I would imagine I'm not the only person feeling that. But there is no formula, I would say, Greg's sentence on do whatever you'll regret most not doing is probably what I try to stick to the most. <laughs> the wisdom of Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've mentioned Greg before on the podcast. You may have. Uh, maybe kind of. I don't know if I've mentioned him by name, actually. We've talked about, like, picking a good advisor and that. We feel his presence emanating through <laughs> Melina a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> So this podcast is generally geared towards undergraduates and like early career graduate students, so first few years. And so what 
piece of advice from your experience would you give yourself at that stage of your career? Hmm. It's always difficult to think about what what advice to give yourself. First of all, I would say that I'm not regretful, as I alluded to maybe earlier. I don't regret taking a whole bunch of math. Like, um, if you're interested in a whole bunch of things, I think taking a bunch of math mathematics is like the way to go. As far as my own advice, I would say probably to try to challenge yourself more. So what I mean is I said that I have had a hard time sort of deciding between astrophysics and kind of quantitative biology or geobiology or applying mathematics to biology. And I've always just kind of stuck with the straight and narrow of astrophysics just because I've been a little bit better at it. But there would have been nothing to stop me from you know, challenging myself to do the thing I'm not as good at. That brings me probably in some sense more joy, but it's harder to do. So if I had to come up with something to tell myself, I would say sometimes choose the hard path. That's great advice. That sounds like a great place to leave it. Well, thanks so much, Chris. We loved having you on the show and you, uh, you're you doing some very interesting work and we're excited to hear more about it in the future. And that means... It's time for our bi-weekly space sound of the solar space wind of plasmastrophysical prowess. Remarkable. (laughs) (laughs) Milena, what do you have for us today? All right, so I have a really cool space sound, and it's a little bit long, but I actually want to play the entire thing this time because I think it is very pedagogical to listen to the whole thing and it's also very pretty <laughs> pedagogical i love it that's why i listen to music i'm like oh, you're on a pedagogical record ah oh, how pedagogical i'd like to learn today <laughs> have you heard that new song will mm, purely pedagogical okay, well excuse me if this podcast is not a new hip ariana grande song but not yet someday (laughs) we're working to get her on the show (laughs) we'll get to that level eventually i'm actually going to explain what this sound is so that you can sort of listen for the different aspects of it because i think it's actually a really cool one this sound is displaying the discovery of the first four thousand exoplanets and you're going to start off by hearing a soft background hum that's created by sonifying the colors of the bright milky way stars found across the sky And then you're going to start hearing individual notes popping up one by one or maybe several at a time. And that is the discovery of different exoplanets over time, where each of these notes is going to represent some planet detection or multiple planet detections. Planets with longer orbital periods show up as lower notes, while shorter period planets manifest as notes with higher frequency and so the volume of each node is going to scale as the number of planets that is announced at the same time so if a lot of planets were announced at once you'll hear a really loud note if there's just one planet it'll be a soft note and you'll hear that the audio begins with just a couple of notes popping up gradually here and there that's just the first radial velocity planets that were discovered and then once you start getting all these other surveys that are going on sky the kepler mission then there's this huge number of exoplanets and it's like this explosion of music that's really beautiful. So I'm going to play that for everyone now and I hope that you enjoy.
So that last chord at the end, that was all of the planets at once, so we didn't just, like, discover 4,000 more planets <laughs> again at the end. Which, Too bad. You know, would have been nice, I guess, but... <laughs> that was lovely. It started out sounding like spa music, and it was, like, very relaxing and low-key, and then all of a sudden, uh, Kepler started. And... Yeah. <laughs> Aggressive spa music at that point. <laughs> yeah, exoplanet discovery is truly an art. It's a lovely sonification. I think they did a great job with that. Yeah. Well, thanks for that great sound. I'm glad we played the whole thing. You really have to appreciate it building to get to the point where you're like, oh, wow, we are really discovering exoplanets quickly. Definitely. Yeah. Should we do our one-sentence summaries? Go ahead, Melina. The Parker Solar Probe has already begun to unveil the mysteries of the sun, and we've still got 22 more close approaches to go. Uh, Now we'll play Chris's one-sentence summary. If I had to summarize this whole work, it would be the solar wind has a more prominent effect on the construction of planetary systems than we may think. And Mercury is potentially one of the strongest pieces of evidence for that in our own solar system. How about you, Alex? Do you have a one-sentence takeaway? Oh, geez. Even though it turns out you can't find it in your blood, (laughs) the solar plasma is critical for lots of phenomena on Earth and a couple to planets closer in the solar system. Will, did you learn anything today? Do you want to summarize something? Let's see. I have been sort of mildly obsessed with Chris's paper for a good number of months now, so I really got a kick out of speaking with him. Uh, But I would say I'm a little inspired by his work to try to maybe incorporate some theory and some simulation in my work going forward, that you don't have to pick one, and you can really make them work in tangents. So... I'm going to think about that next project I begin. And that concludes episode 29, Walking on Sunshine. The one astrobite that Milena brought is linked below. We're also going to link to Chris's paper and the astrobite I wrote about it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you like the show? Do you have suggestions that might make you like it more? Or do you want to just say hi? You can send us an email at astrosoundbites at gmail.com Or go on our website, astrosoundbites.com, and fill out a quick contact us form. We will respond to you because it's only three of us, and how much mail could we possibly get? I mean, really. So unless you're (laughs) spamming us with some sort of, like, garbage offer, which we surprisingly do get, we can respond. (laughs) We've responded to those, too. (laughs) We do. (laughs) Even solicitations. (laughs) Please do tell your friends to listen to the podcast. They can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play and SoundCloud, or you can actually go grab the RSS feed and put it onto any app you'd like. As always, thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Did we cut that? That was just stupid. That was one of the dumbest things I've ever said. (laughs) 